That's all the announcements we have in the life of the church. Let's go ahead and turn uh, this morning to God's word. We will be in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8. You know, we're picking up in our series that's titled A King, Kingdom in Search of a King. First three chapters of this book, we saw that the narrative traced the life and the call of Samuel himself, the namesake of the book, and then kind of took a sidebar for a few chapters from chapters 4 through the beginning of 7, looking at the Ark narrative, where the the people battled against the Philistines, and they said, well, we just are losing the battle because we don't have our divine power box, the Ark of the Covenant. So they took it into battle, and what happens? The Ark was lost. It was captured. People were essentially trying to use God for their power. Last week in chapter 7, we saw that the ark has returned to God's people, that the people actually repent of their sins, and when they repent of their sins, they again are in a battle with the Philistines, and God goes before them and wins the battle. And Samuel, he brought a stone, he named it Ebenezer. God is the one who helps us. And that's what we see throughout the narrative of this book, and the narrative of all of Scripture, is that God is the one who helps his people. Yet today, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, just one chapter after God has helped them in the battle, we see the people continue to turn against him. Let's go ahead and turn to God's word. One of the difficult things about preaching narratives and where we are in the Bible is it's really long. And you know, in Sunday school, we're doing something very similar, kind of walking through big swaths of Scripture. So I would just say, bear with me. We're going to read all 22 verses of this chapter, just so you get a, a pretty clear understanding of where we are, and we'll touch places throughout it. But let's go ahead and read. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8. The text is in your bulletin. It'll be up on the screen uh, for you as well. We're going to read all 22 verses in this chapter. Verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that you say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of their king who shall reign over them. This is verse 10. So Samuel took all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said... These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties 
and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flock and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer in that day. Verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today knowing that we have stubborn hearts, that we often do not see our own sin in our lives, we often turn away from you. And Father, today in this time, we do pray that we would see the beauty of your redeeming work for your people in, in the scriptures. Help us to see our sin clearer than we did yesterday at the same time that we may see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus overshadowing that. Father, we need you this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. In 2003, Greg Easterbrook wrote a book called The Progress Paradox. The subtitle for this book is How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. Now, this is not a Christian book, but what he is talking about in this book is that he describes how affluent we have become in the West, how everything in our life is better. We have better food, better health care, better education, better communication, better climate control better entertainment, better transportation, better everything. Yet, in his book, he talks about when sociologists do their surveys and people in America indicate where they fall on the satisfaction scale, they are only slightly satisfied. Easterbrook has many explanations for this paradox a condition that many sociologists have called affluenza. But the fundamental problem is that in this fallen world, nothing here can satisfy us truly. Now, Easterbrook has his own prescriptions, right? He gives some antidotes. Here's what you need to do. You just need optimism, gratitude, and forgiveness to be fully satisfied. Mostly good things, even from a biblical perspective, right? If you look around in your daily life, if you turn on the TV and there's commercials rolling, if you watch a movie or even in conversation with people in your workplace, you will see that other people will give you different solutions for satisfaction in life. 
You just need this new house. You just need this new toy. You just need this new reputation or these new friends. Thing is, we were not designed to find our ultimate satisfaction or contentment in these things. Whatever it may be in your life, your and my life, we look outside of God and we will never find satisfaction. But the Bible shows us that we were intended to find satisfaction in God himself. And if you're anything like me, we know that we are not satisfied with God or what he provides for us pretty often. So we look outside. We look outside of God. We say we, we deserve more than we are given. We demand more from God. But what we really need and what we're really looking for, whether we know it or not, is a relationship with the living God. David, who we'll see later in this book that we're studying now, expresses it very well in Psalm 63. He says, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We see in our text today, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, that God's people again, this is the story of Judges, right, over and over and over again, People run away from God. They're looking for satisfaction outside of his God, of God and his reign. So the big idea for today is rejecting God as king leads to enslavement. We're going to see that in our text. Sometimes when we look at narratives, you can kind of take it apart a few different ways. And one way is to look at it in the dialogue that's going on in the text. And there's two main dialogues that are going on in the text. We're going to look at the first one, which I think is primary, and then I'll summarize the second one. But The people speak to Samuel in verses 4 through 5. This is the first point we're going to look at. Secondly, Samuel speaks to the Lord. Verse 6, then the Lord speaks to Samuel. This is verses 7 through 9. And then Samuel speaks to the people in verses 10 through 18. So before we get into verse 4, the first three verses essentially explain the condition in which God's people are in. Okay, so the text tells us in verses 1 through 3 that Samuel is old. He has become an old man. And in his old age, he has appointed his two sons to be judges over Israel. And these two sons, you remember somebody else had two sons in the book of Samuel. Eli had two sons, and they were also unfaithful. The text tells us that his two sons, Samuel's two sons that were set to be judges, perverted justice. The main role of a judge was to bring about justice. They were doing the very opposite of that. They were perverting justice. So this leads God's people to seek a new leader. He says, Samuel, you're getting old. Your kids are no good at all. We need someone to lead us. It's actually good and right for them to think this. Let's go on. Point one, the people to Samuel. This is verses four and five. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So the people felt their insecurity and their leader declining. Their leader is getting old. His sons that he's appointed to judge over them are unfaithful. 
So they're seeking Samuel to give them a king to rule over them. And there's some truth in this concern, right? They, they should be concerned about this issue that's here. There was no one equipped to lead. So they plead for a king. But not just a king. What does the text tell us? They plead for a king like the nations. At first, when you read the whole text, you might think, okay, well, their desire to have a king at all is actually bad. That they just need to have God as their king, and that's it. If you remember back to Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 17, Moses speaks of the necessity, the time where it would be necessary for the people to have a king. But Deuteronomy chapter 17 tells us that this man is to be a man of Yahweh's choosing, an Israelite, a man without the customary royalty perks like a military machine, multiple wives, lots of wealth. And lastly, this is the most important, he must be a man that is obedient to the rule of Yahweh's law. But the people here in 1 Samuel 8 are not desiring a king that is laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 17. They are desiring a king like the nations, not a king like God would rule over them. One theologian says this, so the fault was not in the fact of the request, but in the motive of the request. It was not the request itself, but what was behind the request that tainted it. The Lord's people were called to be set apart, God's treasured possession, a kingdom of priests. And in their request, they are essentially abandoning their call as God's possession. They want a ruler outside of God. So we might ask what was so attractive of having a king to rule over them. Well, the king, it represented a stable, strong, predictable center for the people. And the people's faith had been stretched to this point, right? They had been led by an invisible God. And the people here are saying, we want a tangible God that will bring protection for us, that will, later in the text, that will fight our battles you hear the irony here, going back to chapter 7? In chapter 7, one page back in the, in the Bible, the Lord himself did these very things for God's people. He went before them. He won the battle. Yet, they are set on seeking a king that will rule outside of God's reign. They were not satisfied with the, rule, the Lord's rule over their lives. We know better, God. We know better. Give us a king like the nations. In Paul Tripp's book, Awe, A-W-E, Awe, he says this, Awesome stuff never satisfies. Nothing in the entire physical created world can give rest, peace, identity, meaning, purpose, or lasting contentment to your awe-craving heart. Looking to stuff to satisfy this internal desire is an act of personal spiritual futility. You would have as much success as you would if you're trying to bail water out of a boat with a strainer. We want a king like the nations. That will be what we desire. But don't we do the same thing often? We look for satisfaction outside the Lord himself. We 
look for contentment, for freedom in our careers, in indulging ourselves in sexuality, in our reputation. We look outside of God to other things. And the Bible calls this idolatry. Trying to fill the God-shaped hole in your life with other things. Give us a king like the nations. So Samuel then speaks to the Lord in verse 6. This is point 2. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. So Samuel is a godly man, right? He knows that this request is not right. It's not good. It's evil in the eyes of the Lord. So he not only presents the request to God, that this is what they want, but he also prays for them. And the text doesn't tell us what he prays, but we know his character, right? We can assume that he is interceding for them. Like, Lord, this is what they say they want, but this is not good. The Lord responds very quickly. Verses 7 through 9, right away we get this. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from this day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So the Lord hears their request. And it shows us, we've already seen this, that the issue is actually deeper than it may initially seem. It's not simply that they're rejecting Samuel's rule over them. They are rejecting God himself. And I'll use in the children's ministry here and in my house, we use the New City Catechism a lot. And uh, I've used it with my kids since they were born. And one of the questions is, what is sin? And I simplified even the kids' version when my children were really little. And uh, I just said, sin is rejecting God. That was the answer. Okay, so I want you to imagine three-year-old Havy walking through our church in St. Louis, and she was walking in the door, hi, Havy, hi, Havy. Sin is rejecting God. Sin is rejecting God. She would just say it over and over and over again. Sin is rejecting God. Sin is rejecting God. And this is exactly what he is saying here. The people are doing it over and over and over again. I brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and they still constantly go back to the sin that enslaves them over and over and over. The people have done this for generations, and they are doing it again. But God's response is interesting to this request. What does he say to Samuel? Obey their request. Give them what they want. I think it's good to see here that we're somewhat seeing kind of behind the curtain of prayer. We don't always get to see both sides. The people are praying, pleading for this, and God is responding. We get to see both sides. Sometimes for you and me, we pray to the Lord, Lord, please give me this. Please allow this to happen in my life. And sometimes, I think it's, it's necessary and good to see this today from this text. Some of the Lord's greatest mercies towards his people is saying no to our prayer. Because at times we desire and we pray for things that are not best for us, like the Israelites are here. 
and he will spare us the hurt. He will say no, but sometimes his greatest mercy is saying no to us. But do you trust the Lord that he knows best when you pray? Even when he says yes to this request of theirs, our God cares enough for his people to warn them. God says, give them what they want, but before you give it to them, warn them of what this king is going to be like. This is point four. Samuel speaks to the people. This is verses 10 through 18. Verses 10 and 11 to begin. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. And I'm not going to read the entire section. But Samuel's summary of the king's ways is simple. He will take, he will take, he will take. He will take your sons, he will take your daughters. He will take your fields, vineyards, and olive orchards. He will take your servants. He will take, he will take, he will take. Verse 17 and 18, to conclude this section here. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. I think it's good for us to see that any time we turn to anything outside of God, thinking it will bring contentment, satisfaction, freedom, it does nothing but enslave you feel like you don't want to be under God's rule and reign, what he has for your life, you look for freedom outside of God, what comes, the text tells us? Slavery. This is what sin does. It promises freedom. It gives slavery. In the garden, this is what the serpent promised to Adam and Eve. You will be like God. I'm promising you life to the fullest. It promises life. It gives death. It promises freedom. It gives slavery. That when we look outside of God for satisfaction, we will be enslaved to the sin that we crave so dearly. This is what sin does. It takes and it takes and it takes. Some of you may have seen Hamilton. Did anyone go to Hamilton last year when it came through? Yeah, some of us went to Hamilton. You know, it's a Broadway show that it's, it's... really made its name in the last five years. It came to El Paso last season. And in one of the, I kept hearing the song when I was reading this text this week, because it says, death doesn't discriminate. It takes and it takes and it takes and it takes. It's a rap, right? I'm not a rapper, but that's what it does, right? But it's this idea that doesn't matter. If you turn to sin, all it can do is take and take and take and take for any of us. That's what sin does. We try to get out from under the rule and reign of God for freedom, and slavery is the result. It just takes us. In the remainder of the chapter, we actually see the same dialogue, these four parts in the last four verses. We're not going to cover them all, but I'm going to summarize it. What we see is that people don't respond to the warning. They say, no, give us a king like the nations. And the Lord tells Samuel again, obey Give them what they want. 
we'll see in the coming chapters the result of this choice that they are making here. They are looking for freedom outside of God, and it does nothing but take, take, take. When you look outside of God for freedom, in your career, finances, family, wherever it may be, you will be enslaved to it. It can do nothing but take from you. The good part about this story is that this is not what we find with God. When we come under God's rule and reign, he doesn't take, take, take from us. We don't have a God like the king of the nations. No, the God of the Bible is not one that says, I take. But he's a God that says, I give to you. I, the creator of the universe, give you my only son. God does not take from us, but instead he gives us Jesus. Mark 10, speaking of Jesus, says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The God of the Bible is a giving God. King Jesus gives himself for you and for me. God does not say you for me like every other religion in the world. Not you for me. God says me for you. When you turn to Jesus, all he asks is that you turn away from your sin and trust in that king, the king who gave himself up for you. And you will, tr- you will find there true freedom from your sin, from your shame, from your slavery. Here and only here will you find true freedom in King Jesus, the one who gave himself up for you. Let us pray together. Father, what a beautiful message it is that you, the creator of the universe, sent your son to be given for us. God, as we so quickly turn away from you, we just pray for strength, for obedience, that we would continue, God, that you would just turn our hearts to you over and over again. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the one who gave himself for us that we may live with you. Lord, we come to this, your table, to be nourished by what you have done for us in Jesus. God, be with us here now. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.